welcome. This is the um, next session on the history uh, of anatomy. It's entitled Diorama Revisited, the Body World's Exhibition of Gunther von Hagen's and the Artiste's Macabre. I normally start with a, a few uh, quotes uh, which I like. One is by Jean Baudrillard. Reality is not a fixed subject, but a constantly in evolving construction of culture. Quite like that. Uh, also by the photographer Joel Peter Whitkin from uh, his book Grotesque Natural History and Formaldehyde Photography. It's actually an exhibition catalogue uh, from uh, a 1989 exhibition. I want to live in an age which sees similar beauty in a flower and in the severed limb of a human being. That's a pretty good one. And one also by uh, a drama professor, Stephen Johnson, uh, drama professor of Toronto, in um, uh, an essay called The Persistence of Tradition in Anatomical Museums. That was in the book The Anatomy of Body Worlds, original essays on the plastinated cadavers of Gunther von Hagen's, published by McFarland and Co. in 2009. If traditions and antecedents were at work, this plastinate had more of Rabelais than of Michelangelo in it. Another one by Giovanni Levi from his On Microhistory and New Perspectives in Historical Writing, uh, edited by Cambridge Polity in 1991. The effort to understand a culture is, is measured by the aspects that fall outside of its apparent norms and yet present in the traditions. Quite like that one too. The modern imaging technologies have provided fresh opportunities for artists and anatomists to intersect. For some like Francis Bacon, born 1909 and died 1992, the reserved constraints of the X-ray image framed the perimeters of his art. His use of linear radiographic guidelines geographically cleaving out his portraits with a mechanistic precision. Bacon's pictures of Pope Innocent X were meant to mirror a 1650 portrait by Diego Velasquez. But Bacon painted the pontiff in front of hanging sides of beef, reminiscent of Rembrandt's images of a slaughtered ox. And then under the influence of one of his favourite books, Kathleen Clark's 1939 Positioning in Radiology, he, he that is Bacon, bisected the painting with lines of longitude. Bacon's world was dominated by the religious heritage of his Irish upbringing, the pictures an isolated moment in the life of the Pope, who's caged by meridians and plumb lines and reduced to screaming his head off. Bacon never used sitters for his paintings, preferring photographs of Clark's models as his motivation. But to me this approach seems rather sterile and dull, and far less inspirational than they might have been had he ever considered exploiting the anatomy of a live nude model. In the 18th century, under the hands of those like Reich and Fragonard, who were both obsessed with preservation of the body at a time when this seemed impossible, public exposition of the corpse became a choreographed art form. In 1995, enter a cadaveric showman, the pathologist Gunther von Hagens, who patented a complicated scientific technique of body preservation that left the human cadaver dried and dehydrated, its, its interstices pump-filled with a polymerised plastic that could be shaped into parodic and lifelike poses. His show Body Worlds, Die Körperwelten, began its first tour in Tokyo and Osaka and quickly metastasized from there to 30 different countries over the next two decades. Once more, the carnival atmosphere surrounding cadaveric dismemberment and display captured the public imagination, describing an arc of modern comparative parallels with its Renaissance successes that given the quirky and even ghoulish personality of Van Hagen's himself, was as much part showman as it was show. 
Once again, the cadaver loomed centre stage, revealing its greatest humanity in the guise of a skin decorche, and the public fell in love. Ever a student of history, Van Hagens had added a new twist, laying out the bodies in his exhibits with a lampooning vivacity. His corpses threw javelins, played chess, and even engaged in necromantic intercourse and it became harder to discern where the anatomy ended and the art began. His exhibits attracted more than 30 million visitors worldwide, as travelling shows go, and by any metric of attendance or revenue generated, it would be fair to describe Body Worlds as the most successful public exhibition on Earth. Both Van Hagen's and his show have received an extensive and very mixed response, the ripples of which still echo. Regardless of one's position on the indecorousness of transferring private dissections to a public forum, or of the elevation of dissection itself from a mere process to a lad and admirable art form. There's no doubt in whatever state it is presented that the corpse retains significant pulling power. Some have most assuredly considered the types of embellishments von Hagen's adds to his display of corpses as perverse, even if they have not yet achieved the enviable status of what the semiologist Umberto Eco referred to as, quote, an authentic fake, unquote. Whatever else he may profess to be, and despite his protestations to the contrary, Van Hagen's is a modern emulator of recognisable historical anatomizations. His cues of enthusiasts snaking out into the streets of Berlin Amsterdam and London, as they would with any other shows of human anatomy, only perhaps separated by time. He might surprisingly claim no particular allegiances to history, but all the while he's channeling the raucous energy of the crowded pews that strained to see Vesalius cut into human flesh, or that kept the secrets of the dissection room for William Hunter. With Van Hagen's The Body World's captions to his pieces that extolled the dangers of a life of smoking or of devotion to a chronically poor diet are accompanied by the visible organic effects that clog nearby lungs and that stack the sclerotic arteries of the morbidly obese. But in this his shows are as moralistic, albeit less spiritual, than their forebears. They're no different to any Leiden dissecting room crammed to the rafters with the visual and epithetic reminders of the risks of leading an impious life. The anatomy of Van Hagen's is just as prescriptive, just as doctrinaire, his imagery celebrating the body as a relic of bad personal choices. But he also doesn't lose an opportunity to ape the dioramas of old, the choreography of his 2000 rearing horse with rider, a perfect homage to a mounted ecorche, the horseman, made by Fragonard, which was first displayed in the 1790s at the National Veterinary School on the outskirts of Paris. Comparisons don't end there. <coughs> in another piece, there's a robust Van Hagen's tableau showcasing a fetus inside a dis disembodied uterus, interrupted in its gestation. It's as confronting as any of William Hunter's pregnant casts that were moulded from still warm women. But if this is just museological reference and reverence, why all the controversy? Part of the vitriol, to be sure, has to do with an attack on the personality of the man more than his work. His signature, that is, von Hagen's large black fedora hat, which signals his connection to the praelectors of old, his rallying cries to demystify anatomy for the citizenry at large and his need to impart the purported secrets of medicine which he believes have been deliberately and conspiratorially withheld by the medical profession have each made him enough enemies. In 1977, working at Heidelberg's Institute of Anatomy, he invented the revolutionary method of replacing the water content of tissues with a composite of polymer compounds in a process he calls plastination. It's hard to describe the sensational impact this process has had worldwide on the preservation of cadavers. 
Despite its great expense, most anatomy departments now have reserved a specific budget to buy or produce in-house these preserved cadavers, mostly because they're dry, odour-free, uncontaminated and non-contagious, and in effect perfectly treated for indefinite use. In magnanimous spirit, Van Hagen's recipe for plastination is freely available and any department can begin its own programme. The plastinates, as he calls them, aren't perfect as specimens go and they do show some wear and tear after extensive use, but they've radically transformed what specimens one needs to keep in any university department of anatomy. For many who can afford them, the dissecting rooms have been cleared Gone are the leaking jars and the vast tubs of preservatives swimming with loose body parts. The plastination process is particularly elaborate, involving two fundamental exchange phases. In the first phase, the normal tissue fluids are substituted for acetone after soaking the body in a cold bath for a prolonged diffusion period. Soluble fats are then leached out with a warm acetone bath. During the second phase, tissue acetone is then extracted and gradually replaced by a combination of reactive plastics, most commonly silicon rubber, epoxy resins and polyester resins, which enter the cells by a forcible vacuum impregnation, sucking out the cellular acetone. If the corpse is initially dissected or sawn into thin slices, then the plastination process will preserve individual specimens for specific teaching purposes. The art of production is one of fine-tuning dependent upon the estimated fat content and the age of the specimen as well as the species being preserved. After all the anatomical structures have been properly positioned or choreographed, if you will, the specimen is then gas-cured for hardening. The slices Van Hagen's called, calls the sheep plastinates, the whole bodies he calls the Gantz corporate plastinates. Epoxy resins are harder and they're more commonly used for cross-sectional specimens which require heat curing for permanency. And the process was patented in different forms by Van Hagen's between 1977 and 1982. But it's more than the process that has simultaneously garnered both high praise and heavy attack. As battle lines had been drawn in the accommodation of his ideas, his allies and enemies have each attracted strange bedfellows. Whatever his original intentions, some of which may even have been lost in his reactive rhetoric, he's renegotiated a cultural taboo surrounding the dead body and changed the way we perceive of the physical finality of death. There's now a further opportunity for our plastinated selves to leave an indelible and a spiritual permanency. For some, this has triggered a re-evaluation of their death fear and even a religious crisis. For others, it has sparked what Julia Kristeva considered a response of abjection invoked by the proximity to any corpse, let alone our own. It makes all of us Van Hagen's plastinates intolerable to be around. Christiva's secularly repulsive abjection, as she called it, is uninfluenced by the limitation Van Hagen places on decay as a feature of his corpses. The abject response is still there as a human reaction of horror induced by the recognition of all areas which are separate from ourselves and that we would normally find repulsive. And these would include, according to Christiva, horror itself, vomit, sewage, and especially corpses. It's worth uh, looking at Julia Kristeva's Powers of Horror, an essay on objection, uh, which was published uh, originally in 1980. What are we to make, then, of these plastinates, and what occupies <coughs> the space between Van Hagen's intentions and our response Firstly, there's some struggle to effectively name and isolate his technology that positions its plastinates in a liminal state, somewhere between a central core of their human DNA and an exterior that's been buffed to a polymeric finish. Audiences see in them, I guess, what they wish. Some find a sublimated humanity extruded by the plastination process with only the accoutrements of show which could hope to ensure that what we're looking at is actually one of us. 
It's perhaps the reason that the purveyors of the wax mimetics of anatomy, so beloved of their 18th century Bolognese and Florentine clientele, adorned their anatomically correct Venus-like figures with real pearl necklaces and bewigged their venerine with human hair. There's no doubt for today's spectator who's up close and personal with one of Van Hagen's contemporary plastinates that there's the same sort of expectation of a Promethean moment that might have overtaken past visitors to these great Italian exhibitions. There's the same evanescent hope that the dummy may actually wink. But the wax venuses will always be simulacra trying to be real. With Van Hagen's, it's the converse. His plastinate is the real thing, striving like the Venus to live out of its station and become a simulacrum. In his first and most important stated imperative of body worlds, Van Hagen's invokes what he calls the public's right to the democratisation of anatomy. It's an ambitious aim, needing a lofty phrase. If he intended to educate people about the inner workings of their bodies, then knowledge alone is power, and its purpose was to empower those who uh, came to visit and to exert positive influence on that over which we still had control. This was then anatomy as an obligate healer, each black and sticky smoker's lung oozing with its carcinogens, the distorted byproduct of an anatomy with which we should not only be familiar, but which we should be obliged to protect. That was his message. This method in the madness of each show, the first part of which is clearly pedagogic. But from then on, the shift in the nature of the specimens is technical and comparative. He splits the body into its component parts, but still retains its tenuous connection to art. The anatomy on display has become entirely dimensional, slicing the body this way and that in emulation of the exploded view which Leonardo first drew of the body, when he realised that he could show all of the perspectives of its fragments separated into layers in a single drawing. It was the earliest version of a virtual 360, obligingly letting the spectator see all the possible angles whilst remaining put. That was Leonardo's exploded view. With Van Hagen's, the first plastinates are axial slices of the trunk that are paired with their comfortingly familiar CAT-scan correlates. But next come his specimens, which are literally closer to the bone, where he sections off the face, separating the features of what it actually means to be a face from its lifeless scaffolding of indiscriminate muscle and cartilage underneath. These are harder to interpret. We see it all, Van Hagen's proudly reporting in his catalogue that the idea came to him as an epiphany after watching his neighbourhood butcher rhythmically working a meat slicer. Next there are the coronal splits from fore to aft, placed alongside their corresponding MRIs. These slices of cadaver are stacked up against one another like a deck of playing cards. And finally, there are some bandsaw-width remnants that have cleaved the body in two as a sagittal split starting at the front of the abdomen and working its way backwards to the spine. Here, the body is open up like a travel suitcase. Now, even though we may think of him as an artist or as a hybrid educator, maybe an engineer, an architect, a designer or an inventor, Van Hagen's doesn't see himself in any of these guises. If within each of these incarnations he would have us believe that he is separating the science of what he does from its artistry, then the manner in which the two are conflated in each of his exhibitions would seem confusing. His draw cards, however, are his whole-body plastinates, which have been stage-managed into poses normally inhabited by the living. Here, for example, is his skinned man, muscular and defined, holding his own skin like a sports jacket. It's nothing more, however, than a likeness of Saint Bartholomew, which had been pinched from Michelangelo by the Spanish anatomist Juan Valverde de Amusco, who in turn had asked his medical artist Gaspar Becerra to sketch an image of the saint as an anatomical schematic. 
It's quite possible that Dan Musco had taught Michelangelo how to dissect bodies, and the Spaniard was no stranger to plagiarism, stealing most of Vesalius's imagery for his own 1556 anatomy text, Historia della Composizione del Cuerpo Humano. The skinned man appears in Michelangelo's Last Judgment, of course, most likely as a sad and shriveled self-portrait. But that idea was something even the great master himself had pilfered from a 1480 image by Matteo di Giovanni, showing the wandering Saint Bartholomew holding his own skin, neatly folded over an arm. One can find too von Hagen's chess player sitting forward and alone in contemplation, a plastinated version of Rodin's The Thinker. Van Hagen's has at least had the good taste not to emulate other sculptures of antiquity in his amphitheatre. There is fortunately no Medici Venus, no dying Gaul at the exit. But just when you're about to revel in the novelty of the show, Van Hagen's cannot help himself. Here there's a reclining man, the spitting image of the iconic Borghese gladiator. And over there is another with its plastinated arm raised in salute, just as Cigoli's Bargello e Corchet, or akin to any of the muscle men drawn in Vesalius's Fabrica. These dynamic specimens von Hagen's has rather Germanically called his Gestalt Plastinates, the end result overwhelming the viewer and presumably in living up to its name, contributing more than the sum of its parts. That is Gestalt in definition. These are the plastinates that have provoked the greatest wonder, and from certain quarters the heaviest criticisms. Beyond lies one of his most scandalous figures, a plastinated woman in the advanced stages of pregnancy. The reclining woman, as it is called, is sliced down her middle to reveal her gravid uterus and its nestling unborn progeny. It's an embodiment of gestation that would have brought the broadest smile to the face of William Hunter. But when Van Hagen's laid the open woman alongside a virtual cornucopia of fetal abnormalities, it drew the ire of a Mannheim audience that saw his perfected vision of men with their puffed-up dangling genitals, in contrast to the birthing machinery of women who seemed only capable of producing fetal malware. Van Hagen's was a misogynistic impresario, they cried, putting women in their quote-unquote rightful place as mere breeding machines and frequently flawed ones at that. In an era which has largely rid itself of the travelling freak show, Van Hagen's seeks to remind us of the innate popularity of any anomaly, even when for a time he avoided the temptation to include plastinated monstrosities, gargantua and dwarves, or perhaps the greatest prize of, of them all that showmen deem worthy of exhibiting, those specimens, if you wish to call them that, with ambiguous genitalia. There's actually a rich history for all of this, no matter how crass it appears now, a rich history of displaying cases of sexual ambiguity, dimorphism, as it is called, as museum specimens, now long since gone. But in the 1740s, the St. Petersburg Kunstkamera had several hermaphrodites who performed in museum shows as live exhibits. As the pathophysiology of feminising and androgenising intersexual disorders became understood, they were considered medically manageable cases and they were no longer titillating curiosities. But even without this enticement, a show still calls, of course, for a showman, an ancestral barker channeling the entrepreneurial spirit of yesteryear's anatomists. There's little sense in pretending with von Hagen's that this was something we hadn't seen before. But beyond the arguments of taste lie some more serious objections. Whilst von Hagen's was trying to capture some moral high ground by peppering the exit halls of his shows with body donation forms, there were some quite sinister accusations about the provenance of his cadavers. In response to practical difficulties in readily acquiring corpses, he developed his operations uh, and moved them to Kyrgyzstan, a 
and also to Dalian in the People's Republic of China, both places where it's been alleged that his bodies were those of political prisoners, the indigent and the mentally ill. A report in the German weekly Der Spiegel had claimed that some of his Chinese plastinates had bullet holes in the back of their necks, a hallmark of Chinese military-style executions. It's not completely possible to actually trace the financial linkages within von Hagen's organisation based upon publicly available information. He had declared interests in a plastination company and a bioacademy, a plastination institute in Dalian, as well as a research centre at the Kyrgyzstan State Medical Academy and a similar institute in Siberia. Processing of human remains was performed at his Institut for Plastination in Heidelberg, as well as in Dalian, until these activities were suspended following the Der Spiegel expose. Afterwards, he left Heidelberg and was in dispute with the university about his right to actually use the title of professor from their institution. Amongst further allegations, the Director General of Kyrgyzstan's mental health facility ultimately confirmed the shipment of unclaimed bodies to the Medical Academy and from there to Germany. In 2006, after refusal by the town of Sienowazarska in Poland, von Hagens opened a large workshop gallery, actually, as well we could call it, in Guben, on the Polish border, halfway between Dresden and Berlin, which he calls his Plastinarium, where the technique can be observed by the public in tours, along with new showpieces. The Guben Centre received a makeover in May 2010 with part of the workshop a dedicated sales area of animal and human plastinates, but sales only to qualified medical and academic staff. Indeed, after the Der Spiegel expose fighting back, Van Hagen successfully obtained a restraining order against the paper with a response from the anatomical powers that be that seemed, however, at the most lukewarm. The German Anatomical Society could only come up with an objection that body worlds might have violated the scientific principles of their organisation. The British Association of Clinical Anatomists, for example, were already concerned that his use of bodies had trivialised and undervalued cadavers, and they were fearful that his latest revelations would only worsen an already observable dip in their own body donation programmes. Rather meekly, the then Attorney General, uh, and then to be Governor and then uh, later to resign as Governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, censured the Manhattan sponsor of Body Worlds, inviting those visitors who might have been disturbed by the possibility that some of the plastinates could have been Chinese political prisoners. If they wanted, they could seek a refund for their cost of their ticket. But it was still not closed. But all of this does not quite address the elephant in the room. When I first saw the Body Worlds exhibition in Amsterdam after just having visited the Anne Frank Museum, among my complex reactive emotions was one that somehow equated it with those silent movies taken on the outskirts of civilised villages showing bulldozers piling innumerable nameless bodies one on top of the other into a common pit. Now, don't misunderstand, I, I don't equate Van Hagen's with any of that. But confronted by his gun's corporate plastinates, his whole body plastinates, the mind instinctively searches for parallels. <coughs> Perhaps I would have felt differently if my museum tours had been reversed, or maybe there's an historically alienating feeling in seeing any collection of naked corpses in Germany. Perhaps that impression will always remain unfair. But there was no escaping the notion that there's a distinctly German narrative to body worlds. And it's not coincidental that between 1996 and 2004, body worlds was predominantly shown in Germany, clocking up nearly six million visitors. A prophetic number. The English, in their objections to Van Hagen's exhibits, were always overly procedural, unable to prosecute him over his lack of regard for licences. He even goaded them by performing the first public autopsy in England since 1832, putting it on as a live TV broadcast. 
That was performed on November the 20th, 2002, on 72-year-old Peter Mies, who had died from a heart attack five months before. This autopsy, which is not a regulated procedure, was performed in a brewery and broadcast on the BBC. In essence, this public event was no different to that organised by the entrepreneur P.T. Barnum, who sold 1,500 tickets in 1836 to the autopsy of one of his live exhibits, the so-called oldest woman on earth, a Mrs. Joyce Heth, who had claimed to be George Washington's nanny, which would at the time have made her 161 years old. Anyway, when she died, her autopsy was performed in public in New York by Dr. David L. Rogers, who confirmed that she would have been around 80 and that her attributed age uh, was actually a hoax. But it's the same sort of approach that Van Hagen's had. Clearly, cutting closer to home as, rug as regards the Body World's ex exhibit, some German rabbis were not unsurprisingly far more visceral in their objections. The perfect bodily specimens perhaps reminded them far too much of the cinematic reels from another time of a code of ideal health trumpeting Aryan hygiene and mythical racial purity. This correlate admittedly belies the fact that von Hagens, as a young man, had spent nearly two years in an East German prison trying to escape to the West. But there's also the background vignette that his father had served with the SS in Poland during the Second World War. It was with some irony that the Nobel laureate Gunter Grass, himself reluctantly revealing his own involvement with the Hitler Youth during World War II, had likened von Hagens and his show to the Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. In one extraordinary public relations gaffe, von Hagens had even claimed that his plastinates would last a thousand years, seemingly oblivious to its oblique reference to the longevity devotee's claim for the Third Reich itself. In amongst the rhetoric of superlatives splashed inside his gift shop catalogue, one's thoughts are not always under the strictest control. For some reason, I couldn't help my mind wandering, fairly or unjustly, to thoughts of Edward Pernkopf, born 1888, died 1955, who was the Professor of Anatomy at Vienna's Anatomical Institute and who had accepted the bodies of Nazi victims to his dissecting rooms and used their findings as fodder for his 1937 book, The Topographical Anatomy of Man. It's been estimated that Pernkopf received 1,377 victims, although it's unclear how many were actually used in the production of his book, which he commenced in 1933. It became a very popular book for plastic surgeons. The physical remains from his museum have subsequently been removed and buried. Certainly some plastic surgeons have disturbingly revived this book, advocating a use of its drawings for operative planning, and the one to read on that is Sabine Hildebrandt. I think that if Bodyworlds is presenting history, though, then Germanic history in particular cannot selectively be ignored. Despite these serious caveats and the ethical entanglements of the provenance of his specimens or the argument over whether he treats them with respect or revulsion, he has offered a reappraisal of death, its meaning and its legacy. He has allowed the cadaver specifically through its hidden anatomy to provide a welcome new narrative on the finality of death, even if he is unable to ease a collective national law. German guilt. Mixed in with all this solemnity, however, and on a much lighter note, if there was one difference between the dioramas of Van Hagen's and those of Reich or even Fragonard, it would be in the invocation of humour. Try as they might, critics of Van Hagen's could not discount the fact that some of the bodies in their bizarre postures were terribly funny. Inside of our responses to death and all of its trappings, Humour is a far better reaction than fear, and Van Hagen's has gone part of the way to dispelling the dread of death by turning some of it into a joke. If we were ever to donate our bodies to such a program, our 
plastinated selves would certainly gain some kind of permanent star quality. But any bequest to Van Hagen's treadmill might be the sort of juxtaposed narcissism that drove the father of utilitarian philosophy, Jeremy Bentham, to will his embalmed body to University College, only on the proviso that it would be overtly displayed. Actually, Bentham had decreed that after he died that he should be publicly dissected, which he was, by, quote, a respectful professional assembly. After his friend Dr Thomas Southwood Smith conducted the post-mortem, Bentham was embalmed and placed inside an open cabinet for display as what he called an auto-icon. Bentham's head was prepared so badly that it was removed and replaced with a wax likeness, and in his later years Bentham reportedly carried around two glass eyes which were to be used in the preparation of his body. The story of the head is uh, something we might uh, discuss in Anatomy Cupboard, uh, as it was used for a while as a soccer ball. Awful. There was nothing seedy or seemingly taboo about my visit to Dr Van Hagen's exhibit. There was nothing around which I felt remorse as I might had I been able to attend one of the travelling anatomy shows dotted around Victorian London, like Dr Joseph Kahn's Piccadilly Anatomy Museum, or like Dr Pierre Spitzner's Parisian Grand Musée Anatomique. Kahn found himself shut down after teaming up with a brigand who peddled cure-alls for venereal disease, and Spitzner was refused a showing in London with tales of special rooms where paying customers could ogle nude mannequins in provocative poses under the guise of a scientific exhibit. By comparison, then, did von Hagen succeed? His process of plastination has created a life-death life cycle that disarms death of some of its terrifying power. That's his principal accomplishment, I think. To get there, he substitutes our own corporeality with a half-plastic artefact that could readily share its polymerised pride of place, I suppose, with any holy relic. I was only disappointed that my visit was missing that religious epiphany. The reconfiguration of the corpse in art is an expected shift in equilibrium, the strings of which Van Hagen's pulls at every turn. It's no surprise to see that equilibrium shift further with free-spirited artistic imaginations exploiting the body and its mediated images to harness a creative corporeal power in an effort to make almost any kind of statement. Wholly corporeal art, or even the art of the mortuary or the dissecting room, has failed, though, to generate its own artistic movement. There's no version of a Manet, Courbet or Picasso pushing a modern artistic vision of morbid anatomy on an unwilling or defenceless uh, audience. Joanna Ebenstein's Museum of Morbid Anatomy, which uh, has reopened in Brooklyn's uh, New York, is one such oblique example. But I really mean morbid anatomy actually spearheading a modern artistic movement. And there's no one who's exploiting the corpse and its bits to take to heart the curator Norman Rosenthal's remark concerning the young British artists' movement that, quote, art is not just about making a vision, but about imposing that vision on others, unquote. Some artists can operate within... Uh, the credo of any New Age movement, even when they have no disciples, by milking the reimagined body and its body parts. But their task over and above the art itself in breaking old taboos seems to be in making the paying customers decidedly uncomfortable. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was the emergence of the body artists that embraced and showcased a complex feminist art movement and which included Cuba's Ana Mendieta, Chris Burden, Paul McCarthy and Yoko Ono, all viciously using their own bodies as canvases that at times made some look like novelty acts on Britain's Got Talent or America's Got Talent. 
Ono's cut piece of 1965 invited audience participation to slash at her clothing and presumably not only denude but dissect her privileged status. And these performances spawned many copycats. Tilda Swinton's The Maybe, conceived with Cornelia Parker, is similar to Ono, but much more passive, with Swinton sleeping inside a glass case for eight hours, like a modern-day Venus, or the obsession with the fantastical sleeping beauty, the beauty endormie. Uh, Swinton's act was first performed at London's Serpentine Gallery in 1995, and then at the Museo Baracco in Rome in 1996, and at the MoMA in New York in 2013. The violent and antisocial examples of body art in the 1960s were collectively referred to as the Viennese actionists and included Hermann Nietzsche, Otto Maurer, Gunther Bruss, Rudolf Schwarzkogler. And this was not strictly a movement, but rather independent performance artists who used their bodies and also body waste as part of public exhibits. And the more violent mutilation artists included people like Franco B or Gina Payne and Marina Abramovich. Not content with lame exposure, Burden, for example, had someone shoot him on stage with a .22 rifle in his show Shoot 1971, and he had his palms nailed on top of a Volkswagen in, Mock's cru- in Mock Crucifixion, that was called Volkswagen 1974. The rush to incur more risque, if not more random, personal jeopardy as body art reached a perilous low point when John Duncan went down to Mexico to acquire a corpse that he could then tape himself having sex with. It was called Blind Date in 1980. The audio of this is actually still accessible on the internet, and this was, if I can use the term, performed on May the 14th, 1980, as part of a travelling art festival, Public Spirit, a write-up and critique of which was rejected for inclusion in the catalogue. I think it says more about the artist's failed relationships and his perverse reaction to these failures than it does to the legitimate use of a body in art. There have been other equally shocking expositions of body art, such as that of the Canadian sculptor Rick Gibson, who was arrested in Vancouver for taking fetuses he'd received from an anatomy department and then rehydrating them to wear as earrings. Uh, Despicable stuff. He was also arrested on the steps of the Vancouver courthouse for eating human flesh. Fortunately, YBA, the young British artists, rescued the art world from such depravities and reposition the body and frame again as a subject of aesthetic interest. In a loose association led by the spectacularly successful Damien Hirst and joined by conceptual artists like Mark Quinn, Anthony Noel Kelly and Colombian-born daughter Salcedo, it's reasonable to suggest that they achieved as much for the appreciation of corpses in modern art as the pre-Raphaelites did by venerating young, consumptive Victorian women. Kelly stole the body parts of more than 40 cadavers from the Royal College of Surgeons, for example, in London, so that he could use them to create plaster casts, which he then exhibited at the London Contemporary Art Fair in 1997. In a landmark decision by the court, which designated bodies and body parts as property, he was convicted of theft and sentenced to nine months in prison. There were many in the YBA, most of whom have gone on to bigger and better things, who integrally insinuated the anatomy of death and dying into their early work. Hurst enjoys a stratospheric fame, and as a marketing genius who used the ephemeral nature of his work to create an enduring brand. And in his A Thousand Years, he celebrates decay as a process. Here's the life cycle of the humble housefly, hatching its maggots in one chamber, that then move to another and feed on a bloodied cow's head, only to take wing and be caught at the other end of the piece in the UV light of an electric insecticutor. As the microcosm of a broader chain of being, Hurst's piece is predicated on its ultimate corruption, 
was first exhibited in 1990 at the warehouse show Gambler and was then publicly praised by Francis Bacon shortly before Bacon's death. As a young man, Hearst's work experience in a mortuary clearly also influenced his interests in presentation with his The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, arguably his most famous piece. It celebrates the textural surface anatomy of a formalised 14-foot tiger shark. Somewhat ironically, it represents a piece that focuses on a preservative seeking to forestall the inevitability of decomposition of the flesh. There's a memorable photograph of a smiling Hearst next to a decapitated head of a corpse from 1981, the photo clandestinely taken in the dissecting room. The image called With Dead Head appeared in the catalogue for Hearst's 1991 show Internal Affairs at the Institute of Contemporary Art. As regards that formalised shark that is so famous, Hearst wanted to use a great white, but it was declared an endangered species three days before he was uh, uh, able to uh, place his order to get one. And the shark used by Hearst was caught off Harvey Bay in Australia in 1992. The piece was then bought by Charles Saatchi. Within a year of acquisition, it began, however, to disintegrate and it was gutted with the skin stretched over a wire scaffold. And this was ultimately replaced by a second shark, which was more perfectly embalmed, sparking a kind of debate over the originality of the new piece, whether it was the real piece or another piece, effectively. Hearst's exploitation of dead animal anatomy has led to a level of success which seems only matched in some quarters by an equal degree of antipathy. When he won the Turner Prize, the leader in the Daily Telegraph called it, quote, an obvious and disgusting scandal, unquote. That comes from the Daily Telegraph on the 29th of November, 1995. Um, there's also a good book by Sarah Kent, which is called Shark Infested Waters, the Saatchi Collection of British Art in the 90s, which is worth looking at, put out by Philip Wilson, Publishers of London in um, 1994. The American photographer Andres Serrano brought the camera into the mortuary for his 1992 anthology, The Morgue, plumbing a previously untapped pseudo-aesthetic reservoir. Despite a generally accepted ban on cameras in dissecting rooms and in mortuaries and anatomical museums, the forensic artist Christine Borland, who obtained permission to draw at the Montpellier Anatomy Museum, surreptitiously took a series of photographs using a hidden camera in 1986, and she subsequently displayed those images as part of an exhibit. Cet être là, c'est toi de la créer, vous devez le créer. This being is up to you to create it. You have to create it. That's the title of the uh, of the uh, show. It was a sentiment really about getting into the morgue and using that as an artistic reservoir, really, that was echoed by Stan Brackage, who in a nineteen seventy eight film uh, filmed a real post mortem in Pittsburgh, entitling his silent movie with the inherent meaning of autopsy the act of seeing with one's own eyes. Brackett's film was part of what became known as the Pittsburgh Trilogy, which also included Eyes about the city police and Deuce X, which was filmed in a hospital. Despite banning cameras in morgues and in the dissecting rooms, dead photography, as one may call it, became a staple of Joel Peter Whitcomb, a Vietnam War uh, vet and photographer who began photographing corpses in the 1980s and who staged an image of a decapitated head in a mock kiss, which he called the Kiss 1980, causing an absolute uh, outrage. Witkin's particular flair is to create sumptuous ersatz, renaissance and baroque tableau by assembling and revering both death and deformity. The influential rationale for his work seemingly started when he was a young boy after he witnessed a car accident, so he says, in which a girl was killed, her severed head, at least in his story, rolling close enough towards him that he bent down to touch it. 
Whatever the truth in this ghoulish anecdote, he sought out the dead body as the inspiration for his photographic art, combining the corpse and its parts with an extravagant display of amputees, transgendered and the marginalised. These are his heroes, their non-typical anatomy, normally the standard bearer for a social isolation he hopes to reverse. His 1994 Glassman, the picture of the crude, rough chest and abdominal closure after an autopsy in Mexico City, is a contemporary issue, image, uh, which is designed to look absolutely antiquated. It is in some ways wholly American in its representation, like the image of any Wild West outlaw who's been killed in a gunfight and afterwards propped up for posterity in a makeshift coffin. But Whitkin isn't alone in the impression a violent death might have on one's art, as there's reasonable comparison with the works of Théodore Géricault, born 1791 and died 1824, who took to painting the heads of those who'd been executed by the terror's guillotine during the uh, French Revolution. We impose an expressiveness onto the corpse by daubing it with what we imagine as its experience of death. As medical students in that intimate relationship dissecting the cadaver, we watched it passively degrade from its pristine state into an abstraction and in the process ascribed to it the full gamut of emotions from serenity to abject suffering. Another form of body art that highlights anatomy underscores pathology, the artists showcasing the anatomy of their congenital or acquired suffering. Here the deformation of anatomy is critical. The exemplar of such autobiographical art is perhaps Frida Kahlo, who painted her broken heart on the outside of her chest in her 1939 The Two Frieders, or in the broken column of 1944, her thorax encased in an excruciating splint after she'd broken her back in a car accident. These pictures exteriorise her wounded internal organs or her body scaffolding, using her damaged anatomy as the medium for the deepest emotive expression of her physical and spiritual anguish. <clears throat> Radiological imagery has also been a medium for the artistic representation of sporadic and heredofamilial disabilities. New York's Laura Ferguson has used serial plane X-rays as the visual medium to chronicle the progression of her uh, spinal scoliosis. Ted Meyer has exploited MRI images to outline his congenital gouches disease, the progressive accumulation of toxic lipids in the brain and soft tissues. Some have used infirmity and the anatomical deformation of surgery as a visual autobiography. British writer Jo Spence shows us the changes in body image she experienced following her mastectomy before the disease took her prematurely. There are more photographic journeys through hysterectomy. Richard Sordon Smith diarises in film the morphological impact of living with HIV-AIDS. There are, of course, the innumerable graphic narratives of cosmetic surgeries and massive weight loss, each of which is reliant on the visual shock of its before and after imagery. Um, one particularly beautiful direction which exploits the intricacies of Surface anatomy has been adopted by two highly corporeal, I might call them Australian artists, both creating fibreglass and silicon hyperrealist sculptures that are so lifelike that in an exhibition they're figuratively insinuated so as to defy that regulated space between the art and the observer. Neither artist, Ron Muick uh, or Patricia Piccinini, explore the internal anatomy of the human body, although uh, there are elements of Piccinini's work that escape the exterior. For both, it's mostly about the surfaces, contours and textures of the skin, even if with Piccinini it's mutant or hybrid human skin. 
There is with the work of both anatomists an irresistible urge to touch their pieces and the transient impression that in turning around to gauge the reaction of others that their sculptures have suddenly replaced your companions. They're that lifelike. They even appear to be sitting in judgment of themselves with the very real prospect that they might speak or come to life. Muick plays more with size than proportion, uh, presenting diminutive adults and giant babies. He distorts the Renaissance notion of preformation, whose adherents believed that a newborn baby had slowly grown in the womb from a perfectly formed miniature of itself. Muick's sculptures are snapshots of terribly ordinary people, his subjects configured in such a way that their everyday realism renders them spectacular. It's very much like the Dutch artists of the uh, Renaissance. But his attention to detail demands an up-close inspection of the hand-laid spots of beard stubble or the bland wrinkles in his old ladies. In one of his pieces, Dead Dad, part of the YBA sensation exhibition in 1997, an undersized but perfectly proportioned man lies naked and exposed on the floor, eyes closed, palms facing upwards in the manner of a corpse just after it's been washed. This stunning little sculpture is made all the more poignant because it's the artist's dead father um, from whom Muick was estranged and who died in Australia whilst the artist was in London. The sculpture lies exposed on the floor, vulnerable, and at a mere 102 centimetres in length, it's deliberately pint-sized. Muick simultaneously shrinks both the man and their relationship, and in so doing he shows a sharp and almost calculated detachment from both the generalities and the specifics of this particular death. They were not speaking to one another, and he renders his father a small uh, little dead piece. By contrast, Piccinini uses the surfaces of her sculptures to fashion hybrid creatures by playing with our preconceived notions of features that render some things anatomically human and other things alien. Even though many of the different animals that she's created are quintessentially simian, she doesn't restrict herself to humanoids and much of her work is centred around the lusciousness of mouths and orifices. At points she fuses the anatomy of a human being with something else, imbuing her novel beings with overt expressions of compassion that at first disarms and repels us, but which soon transforms our reaction into one of acceptance and then ultimately, so she hopes, one of refined love. She's caught up in the texture of mutant skin and hints at the lush pleats of what lies beneath. In the age of genetic modification, she plays with organic meaning and recognition, relying on the gradual evolution of our emotive responses. These are universal expressions of maternal love that transcend species. Her particular hyperrealism in some pieces focuses on hair, using its excess in different ways. In some sculptures, coarse hair is the bristled sign of something primitive, a measure of an animal lying low on her arbitrary evolutionary scale. The comfort comforter from 2010 shows a young wolf girl covered in rough body hair, cradling her mutant infant. Alongside her is the piece kindred with two babies, one of which is clearly human, the other more ape-like, clinging on to a doe-eyed orangutan mother. It matters little quite what they are. The dominant theme is just a parent nurturing its child. The longer we stare, the easier it is to accept the ones that don't look like us. Piccinini's dugong-like beasts seductively yearn for someone to run their hands through the plush folds of their skin. Van Hagen's actually encourages an enthusiastic but fearful audience to touch his prepared corpses. This exciting tactile prospect is arguably no different to the simultaneous exhilaration and revulsion Samuel Pepys must have felt when, after watching the anatomization of an executed thief and enjoying a hearty banquet afterwards, this 17th century writer was taken through by his guide, a Dr Scarborough, and they both snuck back to the dissecting hall after the banquet, 
so that peeps could touch a cold corpse and feel in his marrow the presence of death. He writes in 1663, I did touch the body with my bare hands, he writes this in his diary, of a lusty fellow, a seaman that was hanged for robbery, unquote. And he finishes his thoughts for his readers by bringing this surreal experience back to earth, quote, it felt cold, but me thought it a very unpleasant sight, he wrote. Um, that's in um, his diary on the 27th of February, 1663. For a man who would soon endure London's great plague and then her great fire, what else might he have expected? The chance to touch a corpse was what drew so many people to the public anatomies of the 18th and the early 19th centuries, and to try to witness the mutilation of condemned criminals too. If ever the supremacy of the visual experience in art were to be challenged by the texture or authority of sculpture, then it might be found here in the works of Muick and Piccinini, and in von Hagen's Guns Corpor Plastinitz. If Leonardo's Paragone all are to be uh, restated, can the feel of a cadaver overcome its visually repellent tropes and finally manifest as beauty? You know that before Leonardo, the debate concerning the supremacy of one artistic medium over another was part of Greek mythology. Those who were for painting told the story of Zeuxis, who painted his grapes so well that birds would come up to the painting and peck at them. An adherence for the sovereignty of sculpture told of a chiselled cow made by Myron, against which nuzzling calves would come and ultimately starve to death. Well, the next one is on the genderization of anatomy, monism and the theory of women. I'll see you next time.